Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim. How are you? Oh, I am so good. It's so happy to talk to you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. What comes to mind when I say the word curry? Oh, so many amazing, spicy, not not spicy mm-hmm. hot, but spiced yeah. dishes. Very flavorful and exotic, which oh, seems yes. like a little bit of a cheat word to say because curry is actually eaten by pretty much every civilization around the world. Yeah, but I, I think exotic works. I agree with the exotic. Yeah. One of the things that I think of when I hear the word curry is India. And one of the things that's really interesting to me about the word curry itself is that according to Raghavan Iyer, who's a cookbook author and who ironically has a cookbook called 660 Curries, says the word curry doesn't exist in any official language in India. Huh. Yeah. But it's become synonymous with Indian cuisine. And you might ask, how did that come to be? How did that come to be, Leigh? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you one theory. <laughs> because as we know, when it comes to theories on the origins of dishes, names, there are as many variations as there are variations on the dish. Like I said before, the word curry doesn't exist in the 23 recognized languages of India. But there are two words that are very similar in sound, curry and karil. And originally, these words were used to describe spices used in dishes as well as the final dishes themselves. Today, they translate to sauce or gravy. And it's easy to see how these two words could have been anglicized to curry. And according to Raghavan, if it isn't gravy-laden or sauce-based, it's not a curry. Curry, as we call it today, is also a great example of how cuisine has been influenced by invasions, colonization, religious traditions, and medical principles. And based on that, I thought it would be kind of fun to take a look at one specific curry, honestly, my favorite curry, biryani. Mm. Biryani is a rice dish that was introduced to India by the Muslims. And here's where invasion starts to influence culinary habits. Traditionally, the dish was made with local rice. And this had to do with both the availability, but also some religious beliefs. And the spices that were used are deeply influenced by Ayurvedic principles related to the combining of spices to help maintain a balance in the body, mind, and consciousness. Meats that were used were influenced by both the Mughals, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, religious beliefs, and Ayurveda. So Ayurveda is considered the world's oldest holistic healing system. It is a Sanskrit word that means the knowledge of life or the science of life. And it originated in India. Some sources say over 3,000 years ago. Some sources say over 5,000 years ago. Whichever one is right, it's been around for a very long time. And the basic premise is prevention by paying close attention to the balance in life, 
thinking, diet, and lifestyle. And so food plays a very prominent role in Ayurveda. I love the description that Pratibha Karan gives to Biryani in her book, Biryani. The magic of Biryani lies in the way rice is transformed into something ambrosial, absorbing the rich flavors of meat and spice scented with the dizzying aromas of saffron, rose, jasmine, or screw pine, the white grains taking on a gem-like mane. Oh yeah, it's Biryani night. Yep. So one of the things that makes biryani different from pulao's, which is a rice dish that includes meat, poultry, seafood, or vegetables, is the way that biryani is assembled. Basically, biryanis are made by layering ingredients in a pan with the rice being the last ingredient added. Some of the ingredients for a biryani are cooked, par-cooked, and marinated, whereas pulao's are generally not layered at all. All of the ingredients go in together with the rice and they're cooked together that way. So biryani was influenced by the Mughal Empire, which was Persia, which is now Iran. And way back in 1526, Babar, Babur, Babar, I'm... Like the elephant? Well, that's that's what I think all the time, but it's (laughs) B-A-B-U-R. I know I'm going to just completely destroy the pronunciation on a lot of these words, so I'm sorry in advance. If there are any mispronunciations, you can absolutely let us know how to pronounce Mm -hmm. them, and we would welcome that. So Babar, who was the contemporary of Henry VIII, attacked Hindustan, which is what northern India was called at the time. He won. And he and his successors ruled the area until 1605, off and on, but mostly on. His successors included his son, Humayun, and his grandson, Akbar. Now, Babar strengthened India's cultural links between Central Asia. Humayun introduced Persian influences back into India, and Akbar ensured that the two cultures melded together. And part of that melding took place in the kitchen, and this is likely where biryani had its birth. So we'll start with the rice, because rice was important to both cultures. Persians brought with them these really delicately flavored rice dishes, where the Indian rice dishes were a lot more flavorful and included a lot of spices that were based upon that Ayurvedic Mm. combining of spices. But rice also was very, very important. And we talked about this concept in our comfort food episode as rice and starches sustaining communities. In the Hindu belief, they felt that the grains absorbed the qualities of the soil and the water in the areas that they were grown. And then when you ate those foods, those qualities would be imparted onto you and they would give you strength. It sort of seems like it transcends to just the literal nutrition of the food itself as well. The idea that you're consuming qualities of the area where your food is coming from. Exactly. The spices... And again, going back to the Persians, their flavor profiles were a lot more delicate than the Indian spices were. The Indian spices, again, based on that Ayurvedic influence, the main concept of Ayurveda is this creation of equilibrium between the body and the environment. The spices were and still are considered having these great healing powers, and they're used to kindle Agni, which is your digestive fire. So a good digestion leads to good health, which leads to the balance in your body. So the combinations that we most associate with Indian food can be attributed in part to Aveda. There are, of course, other factors of trade and invasion and colonization 
that influenced a lot of the spice blends, but that is an entirely new episode. Otherwise, we'd be here for hours and hours, <laughs> right? <laughs> Forever. <laughs> The meat of the biryani is interesting. In Central Asia, there was a strong association with meat and hunting and masculinity. So the Mughals brought that concept of strength in the meats that they brought with them. Though in the Hindu religion, the cow is sacred. So where the Mughals preferred beef and mutton, the Hindus ate more chicken and lamb, seafood if they were closer to the coast. And Ayurveda mm -hmm. also considers meat as a prime form of sustenance, and it is a very effective medicine. So you've got this combination of both societies feeling that meat had these powers that were imbued on you. The Persian technique, the Mughals, had a technique of marinating their meat in yogurt. So that's where that part of the biryani being marinated in yogurt comes from. Now, back to Akbar, who was the grandson of Babar, who happens to be a descendant of Genghis Khan, just as a point of reference. Right. And uh, not an elephant. Not an elephant, no. Not, not Babar the elephant. Okay. <laughs> so back to Akbar, grandson of... Babar, not the elephant. His focus was consolidating the Persian and Hindu cultures. So he implemented these rules that were more inclusive. He abolished a tax that was discriminatory against non-Muslims. He even allowed Hindu princesses that he had married to celebrate their own religions. Wow. Yeah. And he would even... Guy. I, he was. He was a pretty good guy. Mostly. Um, okay. And I mean, he would even celebrate Diwali with his princesses. Aww. So it stands to reason that this combination of the Persian rice dishes with the spiced meats and vegetables of the Hindu culture would have been given a start in his royal kitchens. There's also another legend that follows Biryani. Mm. And this is a story of a beautiful queen by the name of Mumtaz Mahal. And you might Ooh. recognize her name as the inspiration for the Taj Mahal. Indeed I do. Yeah. It's said that when she visited the army barracks, she was shocked to find the men undernourished. And this saddened her so greatly that she ordered the chef to prepare them food that was well-balanced, a Hindu concept, and nourishing that would provide energy to the men. Likely, this chef's influence was steeped in Persian and Hindu cuisine. And so we have biryani. So glad you brought up biryani because it's one of the first Indian dishes that I learned to cook with my father. This is one of the great pleasures of my life. And through that experience of cooking with my dad, I really got to learn a lot more about curry as a dish, dish concept, but also just as, a, as this blend of spices. Because I think when we talk about curry, we do tend to talk about both curry dishes, mm -hmm. but we also talk about curry spices right. almost in the same breath. Yeah. So what I've learned, curry as a dish dates back four centuries. And we know that because there's archaeological evidence of mortars and pestles being used to grind spices, such as mustard, fennel, cumin, tamarind, black pepper. Uh, archaeologists from the University of Washington, Vancouver, which is Vancouver, Washington, not Vancouver, British Columbia... <laughs> have also identified residue of ginger, garlic, and turmeric in skeletons, teeth, pottery shards, and cooking pots. That's how we know what folks have been eating as curry all this time. So as I said, this spans thousands of years, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly in India. 
And India is where the British Empire basically got hold of curry powder. Right. So Indian merchants sold spice blends. These are typically a core base of turmeric, coriander, cumin, fenugreek, ginger, and chilies to British merchants and traders and sailors, which basically caused curry powder to appear as an ingredient in British recipes in the 17th century. Right. So in the mid-17th century, British East India Company was trading with Tamil merchants in Southeast Mm -hmm. India, and a cookbook from this group described curry in one of the recipes as a spice blend called curry podi, which speaks back to the curry that you had mentioned a little while ago, or curry powder. In 1747, best-selling cookbook author and a glass, and I love the fact that she's like, 1747 this best-selling cookbook author because she was her her book the art of cookery was famously popular but she published a book of recipes with this description of how to make a curry the india way and this is actually the first instance of an anglicized version of curry as curry Mm -hmm. this is how we have the word curry in our english language to make curry the india way and i'm quoting from hannah now take two fowls or rabbits cut them into small pieces and three or four small onions peeled and cut very small, 30 peppercorns and a large spoonful of rice, brown some coriander seeds over the fire in a clean shovel, and beat them to a powder, take a teaspoonful of salt, and mix all well together with the meat. Put all together into a saucepan or stewpan with a pint of water, let it stew softly until the meat is enough, then put in a piece of fresh butter about as big as a large walnut, Shake it well together, and when it is smooth and of a fine thickness, dish it up and send it to the table. Oh my gosh, so interesting, because of course they would not have used butter in India. Right. They would have used ghee. So we're starting to see those small departures that mark the adaptation of of a cuisine. Yeah. If the sauce be too thick, add a little more water before it is done, and more salt if it wants it, which I love the way that's phrased. You are to observe the sauce must be pretty thick. So that's the original British recipe for curry. The Indian way. Which is the Indian way, which is interesting because this this absolutely correlates to what you're talking about with the mogul version of the curry having a a meat component. It had to be a sauce. Right. You know, that anything else was basically not a curry. Right. Now, Brits loved curry. Like Mm. once the British started eating this dish, they couldn't stop. The first curry restaurant in England, and this pretty much spawned the curry house phenomenon, opened in Marlebone in 1810 by Sake Dean Muhammad. It was called Hindustan Dinner and Hookah Smoking Club. And this was no dive, right? This was not your average takeout, although they did do takeout. Muhammad understood that the taste preferences of the day ran very elegant, very fancy. This is the Georgian era in England. And his pulaos, which you had mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. were made with very popular ingredients and were very expensive. So we're talking lobster, veal, and pineapples, Mm. all made with Indian spices. That pineapple pulao seems to be rather extraordinary. According to Menus That Make History by Vincent Franklin and Alex Johnson, the pineapple pulao cost diners the equivalent of 125 British pounds in today's money or $170 for a dish of pineapple pulao. Yeah. The Georgians were like obsessed with pineapple and I have to keep reading this book to find out why. One thing that's really interesting about the moguls, one of their biggest complaints was that there were not a lot of fruits that were available in the Indian culture. Mm. So it's really interesting that once it came over to Europe, that there were those 
components being added, and especially pineapple. You know, the other interesting thing about the Mughals, and I'm so glad to hear what you had to say about them, was that they had a trading relationship with the Portuguese in Goa. Yes. And that allowed the introduction of the chili pepper, tomatoes, and potatoes from the Americas. These new ingredients Mm -hmm. coming in from across the ocean did make a huge impact. It's hard to find any Indian curry that does not actually, at this point, contain some kind of permutation of the chili pepper or tomato or potato or all three. Yeah. And Vindaloo, as a great example, was very highly influenced by the Portuguese chili pepper. Yes. (laughs) It's also one of my favorite dishes. (laughs) So yeah, it's really interesting to me how curry as both a spice blend, but also as a culinary phenomenon now really appears as a native or an adopted dish from, you know, all over the world. Mm Mm-hmm including the Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia, East Asia, Fiji, United Kingdom, its Commonwealth nations, including South Africa and the West Indies. And now when it comes to South Africa, I've mentioned before, my parents are South African immigrants. And so I was raised eating a certain style of food, not exclusively. I ate ate plenty of dishes that are very American in origin, cheeseburgers and the like. (laughs) But I was inspired to kind of dig a little deeper into South African culinary history. And it has a very complex story. So South Africa is a country that is, in a way, its own masala, right? Or a mixture Mm. that's inhabited by Africans, Zulu and Kosi, Indians, folks from Fiji, folks from Great Britain, folks from the Netherlands. All over the world, they came to South Africa to make a fortune and to colonize. Well, some people came to colonize, some people just wanted to survive. And so in the cuisine, there are African curries, Cape Malay curries, Natal curries, also probably pretty well known now as the Durban curry. And these from really two distinct regions, KwaZulu-Natal, that's in the east, and the Western Cape, which is surprisingly in the west. And in the space between these centers, you saw the development of other curries in recent years known as Ikasi or colored curries or Afrikaner curries. So amazing diversity in curry cuisine. And a lot of this is due to the fact that through the 19th century, thousands of slaves and indentured servants from India, particularly southern India, were brought to South Africa expressly to Durban to serve as cooks and gardeners. Mm -hmm. And they brought with them curry dishes, chutneys and samosas. You also have a huge influence, especially in Cape Malay cuisine in South Africa, from slaves brought by the Dutch East India Company. These are folks from Bengal, Java, Malaysia. And they brought with them traditions like curries as well, but sambals, dishes like babuti and bredes and sasatis and coke sisters. My family favorite is babuti, which is a spicy sweet or sweecy meatloaf baked with an egg custard topping. And this is a Cape Malay dish. If you ask me about babuti, I would say that it's a dish I just always had growing up. Uh, I knew that it was South African in origin, but I I guess I just never really thought a whole lot about where it came from. I just assumed Mm. that it was a dish that my parents brought with them when they immigrated to the U.S. What I found out, though, is that babuti is possibly a variation of an ancient Roman dish called patinum ex lacte. Oh, which was documented in an ancient Roman cookbook sometime in like 900 AD. And I say that with a question mark because it's one of those cases of we don't really know when, but we know we have it. Right. And that dish, patinum ex lacte, and I might be mispronouncing that. In fact, I certainly am. 
That dish was layers of cooked meat and pine nuts seasoned with pepper, celery seeds, and asfetida, which mm. I put in here expressly so I could say the word asfetida. <laughs> it's so pungent and smelly and like really unpleasant. That's how I feel about asfetida, but it's amazing in food. So in addition to these spices and the meat and the pine nuts, the dish was topped with a layer of eggs and milk. And that that dish was served when the custard was set. And this is very much like how babuti is made now. South African writer and gourmet C. Louis Lepholt wrote in 1933 that the dish was known in Europe in the 17th century. I don't really know how babuti transitioned to what it is today. It's effectively cooked mince, which is usually a beef or a lamb. But as we know, it could be from boar as well. You just want something with like a really good, bold flavor. And this actually kind of feel like that relates back to that sense of gaining the spirit of, you know, like the animal. Yes. Imparting that masculinity and that strength. Yes, exactly. I can't imagine that dish being made with chicken or turkey, although I'm sure folks have and do. Mm -hmm. But that mince is mixed with onion, milk-soaked breadcrumbs, and fruit. I particularly like golden raisins in my dish. And seasoned with curry powder, chili powder, lemon juice or vinegar, and topped with a savory custard of eggs and milk. And I say a savory custard because I think most of us, when we think of custard, tend to think of it being a sweet thing. Right. And this is not a sweet topping. It's just a really interesting blend of textures and, and fabulous flavor. And you get a brightness from the curry powder that's accentuated by the lemon juice and the vinegar. It's delicious. It is delicious. I don't want to start any kind of war, but to my taste, babuti beats American meatloaf hands down. You know what? I'm going to have to agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. It's, it's savoriness. It's But you get that spice. You get that sweet. I just can't compare. Feel free to send me hate mail. <laughs> Please don't send me no, hate mail. No, no hate Please mail. Please don't dox me. No. no, don't dox me over my preference for South African babuti. It goes back to that balance. You've got that sweet and that savory and mm. that that mm-hmm. brightness that's tempered a little bit by that custard. I think it goes back to Ayurveda and that equilibrium. Yeah. So the other thing I didn't really know about babuti until I started asking my parents questions about what they ate as children and young adults in South Africa was that while my dad was familiar with the dish and apparently ate it often growing up, it was not at all common for my mom. Her childhood was slightly more affluent and a little more like continental mm-hmm. than my father's. Her father is the son of French immigrants to South Africa. Mm. So they kind of kept a more British-style table. Right. So babuti was good food, but it was kind of considered a common food. And so not something that you would find, like, at a Sunday dinner table. She definitely grew up on a British, like, Sunday roast dinner. Mm-hmm. But as newlyweds in Southern California, and probably a little bit homesick, she started making it as a home-cooked meal, always served with rice, peas, and sliced bananas. <laughs> to this day, we do not err from this combination and so that by the time that i came along it was just a staple also probably reasonably inexpensive too right so ironically even though it wasn't you know considered a a dish fit for the sunday table it is a dish that both my mom and i make for potlucks and dinner parties in part because it's so uncommon in the states it's it's rare for me to find somebody who's heard of it and so it's kind of a fun little thing to pull out as a here's a dish from my parents native country kind of thing right so it has spread via south african settlers to other parts of africa so it can be found in kenya botswana zimbabwe and zambia and i heard that a variation is also to be found in argentina 
that was brought by Boer settlers in the early 20th century, where the babuti mixture is baked into a large pumpkin. I've never tried that variation, but I think I might have to for scientific purposes. Yeah. Purely scientific purposes. Purely science. (laughs) I'll do it for science. If I have to. Yeah. But the, the thing that I love about curry is that whether we're talking about the spices or the dishes... Curry's warm, tangy flavors have infiltrated other dishes. You know, you think of things like curry chicken sandwiches and salads. There's instant soups, particularly from Southeast Asia and East Asia, potato chips, currywurst, and more. One of the things I think is really delicious is curry ketchup. This is a spiced variation on tomato ketchup, popularly found in Belgium, Germany, Denmark, and the Netherlands. And you would eat this with fried potatoes or or french fries. Mm or frikandelle, or currywurst, which is my favorite. And that dish is a pork sausage topped with curry ketchup. By the way, you may have noticed everything is my favorite. Food, <laughs> I was going to say, there's a lot like of the favorites. Ever. There's a lot of favorites going on here. So I, I had to go down this tiny little rabbit hole, and it's just, it's a sweet story. So currywurst, as I said, pork sausage that's boiled and then fried and cut up, and then you've got curry ketchup on top. This is attributed to Hertha Heuer in Berlin in 1949. So this is a modern dish. Hmm. And the story goes that Hertha traded alcohol for curry powder to someone from the British sector. Now this is Berlin, post-World War II, city divided. Folks are trying to make ends meet. Americans were occupying Berlin too after World War II, and they basically introduced ketchup to Berlin and to Germany. So Hertha started selling this dish at a street stand In the Charlottenburg district of Berlin, there were a lot of construction workers who were working on rebuilding Berlin. And so tangy, sausage, tomatoey, curry, instant hit. So at its height, her stand was selling 10,000 servings per week of currywurst. And she was eventually able to open up a small currywurst restaurant that operated until 1974. Wow, that's an amazing story. That's a long time. Currywurst is so popular that the Deutsches Currywurst Museum opened in Berlin in 2009. Sadly, it's closed in 2018. But it was an interactive museum with a spice chamber with sniffing stations. And I really (gasps) wish I could have gone there. And they claimed, the Deutsches Currywurst Museum claimed that 80 million currywursts are eaten every year in Germany with 70 million in Berlin alone. And apparently the Volkswagen plant in Wolfsburg, Germany, produces 7 million currywurst every year and has its own butchery. And that's what I have to say about currywurst, which also sounds really good. Right that now. does, man. I am really conflicted at this point. Right? I've no, I, I don't recall ever being this conflicted about yeah. what to go eat. I think I'm going to go start a biryani. Okay. You know, I yeah. think as much as I would love to do a biryani, I think I'm going to have to go for a babuti tonight. Oh, yeah. now you're talking my language. Mm-hmm. But first, shall I tell you what we're going to talk about next time? Please do. Oh, this is exciting. So, you know, we're coming up on an enormous cultural event. I am talking about the Super Bowl. So next time we're going to be talking about Super Bowl foods and the phenomenon of the weird meeting spot of food and sporting events. That sounds exciting. Sports, cars, food. Yep. Yeah. Pick your team. And we'll we'll meet you there. Sounds good. I'll bring the beer. Yes. <laughs> For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. 
Follow us on Instagram at As We Eat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing, we'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. Obviously.